Turn to Hebrews 4. And on your way there, you may think of a question. I'm also on the board of directors here at Gull Lake Ministries. Honored to do that. And I also, like Gary said, have a camp name. I'm not sure because I remember how this happens, but I think you tell some stories about yourself and somebody invents some name and then they vote on it. And then it becomes your camp name. Well, my camp name here at Gull Lake is Hip Hitch Hooray. I'll tell you the first part now and another part a little bit later on. So it comes from hip hip hooray, which means something good happened, yay, hip hip hooray. But it's hip hitch hooray because I was one of the original Jesus freaks back in the 70s with my long hair and my big beard. And our main mode of transportation was hitchhiking. That's the only way we got anywhere. And so in the summer before I went to Spring Arbor to be a freshman, uh, my roommate and I, Scott Rowley, decided we would... Uh, go on a witnessing trip. So we hitchhiked from Detroit, Detroit to Boston, Boston to Maine, Maine to Quebec. We hopped freight trains across Canada, came down into Washington, over to Glacier National Park, back over to Cannon Beach, Oregon, and back home in 32 days. And we, everyone who picked us up, we would say to everyone who picked us up, that God loves you and wants to have a relationship with you and made it possible by sending his son Jesus. Would you like to hear more? And so we shared Christ with everybody who picked us up. Well, when, as students at Spring Arbor then, on weekends, rather than wondering what to do on weekends, after classes on Friday, and sometimes sooner, we would go out to the front of campus, you know, the main road in front of campus, we'd have our cardboard sign on one side, it said east, on the other side, it said west, and we'd flip a coin, heads we go east, tails we go west, and we'd hitchhike as far as we could until Saturday night sundown, then we'd turn around and try to hitchhike back to campus in time for classes. Sometimes we didn't make it. But we will literally share Christ with everybody. So that's where the hitch comes from. Have you, any, has anybody ever hitchhiked? you never seen anybody hitchhike anymore? Anyways. Okay. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 4. I, be, I believe in divine appointments. Guy came to my office. Wasn't hardly any time at all. And he starts weeping. Not only weeping, but he's shaking weeping. Because he's come to the realization recently that he should never get married because he's been struggling with something for so long, 10 years he's been struggling with this, has not been delivered from it, and is, is assured that he should never get married to bring that into marriage, he couldn't do it. And he's weeping because he's come to the realization that he can never get married. So I just said to him, I, I said, well, wait a second. I'm, I get the impression that you're suffering a, a temptation of some kind. He said, yes, I am. And I said, how, mu how much do you, is it, how difficult is it each time that one temptation comes up? He says, it's just sometimes just too much. I said, I think I, I've got some advice for you. He says, what's that? He said, I think you need to be suffering more. He looked at me kind of funny and said, what do you mean? I said, well, if you're in Hebrews chapter 4, you'll see in verse 15 where it says, we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, one who's been tempted in all things that we are, yet without sin. Now just imagine Jesus being tempted in all the things that you are, and take the one temptation that you have one time, and the difficulty that you have in that one temptation, then multiply it times every temptation constantly, and how did Jesus handle that? Look down at chapter 5 and verse 8 where it says, although he was, a, um, verse 7, in the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. This is the Lord. 
goes on to say, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. I said, Jesus suffered his temptation. Verse 18, chapter 2, or chapter 3. For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he's able to come to the vein of those who are tempted. Over in Hebrews 12, where he says that all, all testings for the moment seem not to be joyful, but sorrowful, difficult. I said, I said, can I offer you a suggestion? When you're tempted and it really hurts, let it. You're just trying to be delivered from it. Paul asked three times for a thorn in the flesh to be taken away, and the answer was no. He had to suffer that thorn for the rest of his life. And then the Lord said, in your weakness, then I am made strong. Well, that conversation with that young man led to three years of meeting with that person, and I did his wedding last summer. And he looks back on that time and says, I have never been closer to the Lord than in the midst of my suffering. She came in for an appointment. She sat down. She didn't look at me. She didn't say anything. Asked her a few questions. Nothing. So I just sat there. We sat there for a half hour just looking at each other, or not looking at her. She didn't even look at me. At the end of the appointment, I said, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to excuse you. She got up, walked out, never said anything, didn't look at me. Next week, she came back and did the same thing. Week after that, she came back and did the same thing. Didn't look at me, didn't say anything. Just sat there. Fourth week, came back, did the same thing. Didn't look at me, didn't say anything. At the end of the fourth week, I said, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to excuse you. I've got another appointment. She looks at me for the first time, and she asks me a question. Why are you doing this? Which I thought was a good question, because that's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> Which led to a fascinating relationship, because what had happened was she had grown up in a family of eight kids. Christian family, but no one would ever listen to her. She was always told to just shut up. There was too many other things going on in the home for the parents to have to deal with what she was going through. So she just learned to not say anything. She was struggling so badly, one of her friends at, on campus just said, go talk to Ron. And so she came in, she, and what she was doing was she was testing me to see if I would listen to her silence. I believe in divine appointments. Evidently, I passed the test, which led to two, two years of meeting together, and she had a lot to say. My dad is my hero. He died last year, 91 years old. Dad was a ranger in World War II. He was in the 2nd Ranger Battalion C Company. If you've seen Saving Private Ryan, that was the outfit that was spotlighted on that movie. Dad passed away, and we were at the cemetery for the graveside service. And you know, with Dad being in the military, there were military honors presented for him. So there were six gentlemen from the military there present. The playing of the taps, the folding of the flag, the presenting to the family, so on and so forth. After everyone had left to go home, or back to our house for the meal, my brother and I were still standing at the gravesite, and, I had, and we had noticed that one of the soldiers was still there. And so I took a picture of Dad in his dress uniform back when he was 19 years of age when he signs up for World War II. And so I wanted to introduce him to my dad and just say thank you for honoring my dad. And so I walk up to him and I shake his hand and, and he, he looks at me and says, I know you. I said, you know me? He said, yes, you spoke at a marriage conference back in April. I was planning on separating from my wife. We fought to come to this she begged me to come to that conference. 
And I realized that the problem in our marriage wasn't her, it was me. And that conference saved our marriage. So I just want you to know what an honor it is for me to honor your father in the way that the Lord honored me in what you had to say at that time because it saved our marriage. I believe in divine appointments. And with a gathering such as this, I can't help but think that there are people who need to make some kind of a decision. You know how easy it is to get right with the Lord? In the last three weeks, I've done three weddings. When you chaplain at a Christian university, every once in a while somebody falls in love and they want to make it permanent. It's amazing how easy it is to get married. All you have to do is say yes. And a miracle occurs. The two should become one. The difficulty is what? Till death do us part. That's the tough part. You read through the scripture, you ever find somebody getting right with the Lord? Or just getting right spiritually? It's so easy. Take the prodigal. Four words. That's all it took. Father, I have sinned. Take the guy on the cross next to Jesus. Shortest prayer in scripture. Remember me. Imagine this, you guys. Imagine the Lord in the midst of dying for the sins of the entire world. All of human history is hinging upon this moment in time, fully aware of everything that's happening on, on earth and in heaven. And this guy, this bum who deserves to be dying, says, remember me. As if Jesus isn't busy enough. And can't you just see, what, can't you just see Jesus? Excuse me, pardon me. It's obvious you don't know who I am. What I'm doing right now. You want me to remember? Have you ever wondered the consideration that the Lord gives to individual people that in that moment in time, his focus was upon that man? How easy was it for that guy to get right with the Lord? Two words coming right from his heart. I'm not sure what you're facing this week. I've been around long enough in ministry to know that there are people whose lives are coming unglued and they become masters at managing it. People who are simply not right with the Lord and like that young man have not been right with the Lord for a long time and just don't know how to escape it. Could I uh, offer an invitation? I'd like to invite myself into your life this week. I'm not sure if what you think speaker type people do during weeks like this, but we look for divine, divine appointments. You know, invite me to dinner with you. Invite me to your campfire or to your, to your dinner table or something. I'll, I brought my bike. We'll go for a bike ride together. Did you bring a boat and have an empty seat? I believe in divine appointments for empty seats <laughs> in boats. Okay? Otherwise, I'm going to be really lonely here. I'll be glad to go home to my wife. I wish you could meet my wife. She's a master quilter. And also, also the grandmother of our four grandkids, so she's busy. Okay, would you invite me in? Because I believe in divine appointments, do you? It's my firm prayer that this week could turn your life upside down, a relationship upside down, that you would never recover from this time together, and you would never see it coming. I believe in divine appointments. I also believe that people, although e incredible eternal benefits to being saved, I do not believe that we're saved for our benefit. 2 Peter 2.9 says that we're part of a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people of God's own possession. Why? So that we might get blessed? 
so that we could have our best life now? We're people of his own possession. Why? To proclaim the excellencies of him who's called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We've been saved for a purpose. I think of Ephesians, the first chapter. You're familiar with verses 3 through 14 and all those incredible things that have happened through the ministry of the Father, the ministry of the Son, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And after each one, what does it say? To the praise of his glory, he has redeemed us. He has forgiven us. He has chosen us. He has given us place in heaven to the praise of his glory. He has sealed us with the Holy Spirit of promise. Why? For the praise of his glory. Ephesians 2.10 says what? That we are his workmanship. If that's true, what else is, what's your question? If we are his workmanship, what's your question? The question is, what is he working on? Because if you're a follower of Christ, then you fall into the category of being his workmanship. And then we ask, what is he working on? And then the next question is, why? Well, it answers the question. Where's workmanship? Created in Christ for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We've been chosen with a purpose. Turn over to 1 Timothy 2.21, and I don't want you to ever recover from this verse. 1 Timothy 2.21. This verse says that we're vessels of honor. Anyone know what a vessel of honor is? A vessel of honor is a vessel that holds something of great importance. Not just any vessel gets to hold this, but it's a vessel of honor that gets to hold this. We get to be vessels of honor. Sanctified, which means chosen for the purpose of God. So a special vessel for the purpose of God. Then what does it say? Oh, here it comes, you guys. You ever been on an airplane and the pilot says, oh, you know, we're going to buckle up here. There's going to be some turbulence at 36,000 feet. I was on a plane once where the pilot, somebody said, severe turbulence. You ever heard that one? I said, no, we don't want severe turbulence. Look at the next phrase. Useful to the master. Imagine that, you guys. Imagine the, the Lord looking upon your life and, and saying that you are a vessel of honor. In other words, we're going to put something inside of you that, that, that's of incredible value. Not only that, but you're chosen for a purpose. And not only that, but you're useful to the master. Imagine Jesus coming up to you personally and saying, if I'm going to get the job done, I'm going to get it done through you. Anyone here willing to help the Lord understand that he could use far more efficient means than you and me? No, if he's going to get the job done, he's going to get it done through us. Vessel of honor. Prepared for every good work. Imagine that. Second Chronicles 16.9. The eyes of the Lord move to and fro across the tabernacle at Gull Lake Ministries that he might strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Second Chronicles 16.9. The eyes of the Lord move to and fro across the whole earth that he might strongly support those whose completely his. What's your question? Your question has to be, do the eyes of the Lord stop upon me or do they pass me by? Wouldn't you want to know? Oh, that the Lord, eyes of the Lord would fall upon you for his purpose in these days. And then we ask the question, why? What's going on? I'd like to make a case. Turn over to Colossians 3 and Hebrews 12. Put a finger in Colossians 3. Find Hebrews 12. Go back to Colossians 3.
Paul does something interesting here in Colossians. Colossians 2, sorry. Pick it up in verse 13. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Here it comes, look at this. And having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, hostile to us, he's taken it out of the way and having nailed it to the cross. So the question becomes, what's this certificate of debt thing? Is this some spiritual thing? Really not. It's really something that comes right out of Roman culture. Because back in Roman culture, if you committed a crime, you were dragged before the magistrate. They would pull out a certificate. They would write upon that certificate your crime. Your crime, burglary. And then right below that would be your punishment. Six years in jail. They would take that certificate of debt. They would take you to jail. They would put you in the jail. They would nail that certificate of debt to the door, and it would stay there for the entire time. When it was all over, they would take it off, take you back before the magistrate, make sure that you had paid your debt. And then the magistrate would write upon the thing, literally paid in full. So Paul takes that vivid illustration of something called a certificate of debt, and we can make the case we've got the same thing. Anyone here born in this world? We're all born with a certificate of debt. What's our crime? Born into Adam's race, what's our penalty? Death. Now look at the verse. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way and nailed it to the cross. If we had spiritual eyes to see, if we were standing at the cross and we had the eyes of heaven, it wasn't just Jesus upon that cross. It was Jesus upon that cross and billions upon billions upon billions of certificates of debt with our names written upon them. Born into Adam's race, penalty death, and he's taken it off and he's nailed it to the cross. And I, and I, and I just can't help but think of, of the vivid illustration of, of Jesus dying upon the cross and his blood spilling upon each of those certificates of death and miraculously spelling out paid in full. Imagine that. I was sharing this with a group of 600 Christian university students at a conference. Created that illustration. You've seen this before. And so I had a big wood cross here when everyone came in, they had a little piece of paper, and I said, do this. Is there something in your life that's kind of out of bounds? Are you in Hebrews 12? Look at Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, let us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let's run the race set before us. What's your question? Look closely at that verse. What's your question? Let's lay aside the encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us. What's your question? The question would have to be, why those two things? Why not just the one? Why not just the sin that so easily entangles us? Why the encumbrance that so easily entangles us and hinders us from running the run of the race that's set before us? What's the difference between a sin and an encumbrance? And we were talking about this. And so I said to the group, I said, listen, is there something, is there sin in your life or is there something in your life that's hindering your walk with Christ? If there is, write it down on that card. Come on up here. We'll give you a pin. You can tack it to the cross. 363 students later, let me read. I can't forgive others. Anger. If the people knew the real me, they would leave me. Emotional baggage from emotional abuse. Fear, lust, my past, 
thoughts I can't overcome, anger, failure, hatred, unbelief, impatience, cutting myself, how far I went with my boyfriend, not trusting the Lord, my past, bitter, jealous, purity of life, things dad and others have done to me. I'm unclean for my wife. Lord, make me clean. My past, impurity, thoughts, words, that I will never succeed. My worry, the drama of my life, anger toward my dad, needing to be perfect, judging others, feeling them judge me. I've done so many things I regret. Self-centered relationships, drugs, drinking, sex, pregnancy. I'm not good enough, smart enough that I'll fail, that I'll always be like my dad. Hate, lust, unacceptable, mom's depression, unforgiven, hate, no self-worth, being scared, insecure, negative, feelings of unworthiness, apathy about everything, desiring my boyfriend's love above approval over God's, fear, loneliness, treatment of my brother, failure, lack of perfection, unhealthy relationship, I'm worthless, I'll never be good enough. And on and on and on. And you almost get the feeling that there's a, a crisis brewing. And you could say, okay, if, if the eyes of the Lord move to and fro across the whole earth, then he might strongly support those whose heart is completely his. And that's this generation, you guys sitting here. And then he would take you and attach you to this generation. And you could say, well, wait a second. Isn't that the church's job to take care of issues like that? Interesting, you've heard of the seeker-sensitive movement. About 10 years ago, six churches, six megachurches from that perspective decided to do a self-study. For two years, they did a self-study to see whether or not their methodology was really working. And not only those six churches, six churches did the self-study, but now there are thousands upon thousands of churches who have taken on that same ministry format in their churches. So after two years of self-study, Bill Hybels, part of that group, then read the results and said that this should be published. And I quote, we have made a mistake. What we should have done when people crossed the line of faith and became Christians is we should have started telling people and teaching people that they have to take responsibility to become self-feeders that we should have gotten people, taught people how to read their Bibles between church services, how to do the spiritual practices much more aggressively on their own. In other words, spiritual growth doesn't happen best by becoming dependent upon elaborate church programs, but through the age-old spiritual practices of prayer, Bible reading, and relationships. And ironically, these basic disciplines do not require multi-million dollar facilities and hundreds of staff to manage. I hear the words of Larry Crabb, Christian psychotherapist, who said, we've made a terrible mistake in the church by entrusting the care of souls to trained professionals, therefore abdicating the healing role of the body of Christ as we confess our sins to one another and pray for one another that we may be healed. And then coming out of that, then the Barna Group is, is also doing research then on the generation coming out after the 19 to 29 year olds. Fascinating book, You Lost Me by David Kinnaman, subtitled Why Young Christians Are Leaving the Church and Rethinking the Faith. A must read for anyone concerned about the future of Christianity. Let me illustrate this from a collegiate perspective. Now you may think, okay, this generation isn't that bad. The problem is, is that Kinnaman found that 10 years ago, 
60 to 70% of Christian university students were abdicating the faith, checking out of church. And now, a decade later, that number, that 60 to 70% has moved from the college ranks down to the high school ranks. The statistic of 80% of high school students growing up in the church are doing the exact same things that all the other students are doing in high school. Very little difference in the, in the character of their lives. If this is true, then where does the responsibility fall? And I would like to make the case this week that if God's going to get the job done in the generation coming up after us, he's going to get it done through us. Let me use an illustration from my campus work. This fall, or this last spring, of all the students who graduated high school, 65% of them are planning on going to college. That number equals 2.4 million freshmen. 1.4 million women, just under a million men. And if the statistics for the past five years hold true for the next five years, then only 48% of that number will ever graduate. Literally over half who begin college never succeed. And if you look at just from the public school, the public university statistic, it's about 38%. Private universities like Spring Arbor, it's about 60%, which you would think would lead to some profound questions. What in the world is going on here? What's happening with this generation? We could ask questions, where's the 400,000 men? Which is interesting because it's flip-flopped in just a decade. It used to be 400,000 more women than men, and now it's flipped. Why is it that over half who begin college never complete? Is this a generation that lacks intelligence? Is it a generation with a fundamental inability to manage their lives, to manage their choices, to manage their relationships? Or is this a generation that fails to understand a fundamental principle of success? That being that if you're going to succeed, it's going to cost you something. The success is predicated upon cost. You want to succeed personally, relationally, spiritually, academically, it's going to cost you. Even Jesus said in Luke 14, who is it that goes to start a project that doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost, see if they've got the resources to pull it off? You want to succeed personally? Great. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. No longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. In this life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, gave himself up for me. Paul knew that his salvation was absolutely free, but it was going to cost him his entire life for the rest of his life. You want to succeed relationally? Great. John 15, greater love had known this than one lay down their life for another. Romans 12.10, to be fully devoted to one another and to give preference to one another with honor. You want to succeed spiritually? Great. Luke 9, anyone wishes to come after me, Jesus said, let them deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. You want to succeed academically? This is what I tell students, Colossians 3, Whatever you do, do your studies as unto the Lord rather than as unto professors. That's in the Greek. <laughs> I tell students, anybody could be a university student for 40 days, big deal. What about the 640 class days that it takes at a minimum to graduate? That's where we separate the men from the boys and the women from the girls. Because if you're going to succeed, it's going to cost you something. Unfortunately, we've grown up in a culture that values the exact opposite. This is a culture that says, do little and get much, and you're a huge success. Be the CEO of a failed Wall Street bank. You've just laid off one-third of your employees, and you still take a $10 million bonus for yourself. Be a couple boxers. I think Mayweather and Pacquiao 
box on each other for 36 minutes. The winner walks away with $280 million. That's $100,000 per second. And the loser, poor chap, only gets $140 million. And we celebrate these people. Be one of the top 10 CEOs, your pay is 1,888 times greater than the average of your employees. LeBron James, you ever heard of LeBron James? In salary and endorsements, LeBron James makes more money playing one game than the average teacher gets for teaching for 18 years. Do little, get much, and you're a huge success. Be Justin Verlander, throw one pitch, and you just got $13,000. Be named Kardashian, be worth about half a billion dollars simply for having people try to keep up with you. <laughs> I'm watching this Christian TV interview type show. Here's this woman on there. She's got, giving this testimony about all these diamonds she's got all over herself. Diamond rings and necklaces and earrings and in her hair and all this kind of stuff. And she's giving testimony how all she did was ask and, and Jesus brought all these diamonds into her life. And I'm getting nauseous listening to this thing. And then at the end of the interview, the camera zooms in on her face. She looks at the camera and says, and you can have that Jesus glitter too. <laughs> oh, please, lady, shut up. In the name of Jesus. <laughs> Sell the diamonds and feed the world. Do little and get much, you're a huge success. Now, to be honest with you, I'll share a story with you in which I experienced that. I did something very little and got something very much. This was at Spring Arbor at one of the men's basketball games. This is where, the, you know, the hip hitch hooray, here comes the hooray part. I walk into the gym the girl at the ticket table says, Ron, put your name in the bucket. I know that that bucket has got names that they're going to draw out a name at halftime. Someone gets to shoot a basket and maybe win a prize. Well, I'm basketball challenged. I am not putting my name in that bucket. So I walk on past and I say, no, thank you. And she says, I'll put it in for you. <laughs> Great. Halftime comes. I'm sitting there. They bring the bucket over to the announcer's table. They pull out the name and the, and the announcer starts laughing about it. I said to my friend sitting next to I said, I wonder who the poor sap is, because they're laughing about it. Because it could have been anybody, you guys. But no, ladies and gentlemen, tonight's halftime shot's going to be by our university chaplain, Ron Capico. Ron, come on down. You guys have about wet my pants right then and there. <laughs> I mean, the whole place, the whole place is screaming and hollering and cheering and stuff like that. And so I walk out on the basketball court, and the whole place is packed. And they hand me this basketball, and I've got to make a shot. Now, if it was a layup shot, I could have had half a chance. But it wasn't a layup shot, and it wasn't a free throw shot. It wasn't a three-point shot. No, it wasn't a half-court shot. It was a three-quarter court shot. Do you guys know how far that is? You know which basket is closer? So they point way down there. I don't even know how to get a basketball that far. I just threw it like a baseball. And my friend, who's the, the baseball coach, Sam Ringelman, says, Ron, that basketball never went higher than the backboard the entire way there. It was like a bullet. <laughs> well, up until this point, no one's come even close, so I know I'm going to be in good company. So I take the thing and I throw it. And I, and I saw the net move. You know how you have those momentary thoughts like, well, at least I hit the net. I didn't embarrass myself to tears. Well, 
it was nothing but net. Utter pandemonium breaks out. I look over to the students, and they're all bowing. Because I had just won a convertible car that's sitting down at the end of the, of the court. And I wanted to go sit down. No, you can't go sit down. You got to go over there and get your car. My son comes running out of the bleachers. Dad, give me the car. <laughs> Next day in the front page of the local newspaper is a, is a big, about a six inch by 12 inch picture of me, my basketball, and my car. I'm famous. <laughs> yes, I'm at Myers getting my hair cut. And somebody walks in, kind of creepy. You know, they start staring at you. And then they point their finger at me and it says, it's, it's you. I was there. It was the greatest moment of my life. God. I thought, what a sad life this guy's had. Well, the next day I go to the men's basketball practice because they didn't see the shot. They felt it. They said the whole building was shaking with everybody jumping up and down, yelling and screaming. So I walk into the gym and the basketball team dropped to their knees and they're bowing. Guess what they wanted me to do? Not a problem. I'm a pro at this now. So I took, I took, I'm not kidding. I took it and I threw it. It hit the backboard. And then it went in. <laughs> Two weeks later, I'm on a, on a mission trip to Mexico with my students. And my students are playing basketball with the Mexican students. Guess what my students went and told those Mexican students? <laughs> Guess what they wanted me to do? Okay. So I thought I'd jazz it up this time. So I did a hook shot. Went right through. I started buying lottery tickets. You guys, I tell my students, when I tell them that story, I said, that's not going to happen to you this year academically. That's not going to happen to you personally, relationally, spiritually, in any way. If you're going to succeed, it's going to cost. And we are very articulate at the cost you're going to have to pay if you're going to succeed. You sit down in Dr. Kunselman's chemistry class, he drops a five-pound syllabus on your desk, you know you're going to have to pay a price if you're going to succeed in that class. But that's only the first principle of success. Success is predicated upon cost. You want to succeed spiritually? The question is, what's the cost? Great, that's only the first principle. You know what the second principle of success is? That success is not just predicated upon cost, it's also predicated upon the cost that somebody else pays on your behalf. Because you guys are sitting here and you've got stories to tell about people in your life that paid a price for you to succeed. Whether it was in music or in sports or spiritually, whatever it may be, you've got somebody in your life that just came alongside you and hooked on. In the, in the illustration's obvious, isn't it? If it wasn't for the price that Christ paid on our behalf, we could not succeed. Success is not just predicated upon cost, but also upon the cost that somebody else pays on our behalf. Now the question is, for the generation that's coming up, and I can make a really quick case, you guys, the fact that the generation coming up after this is in trouble. There's a potential crisis on the horizon in the church and in society. And this is a generation that's lacking of people that are coming up alongside, and we can't entrust it to the professionals for as good as those in, of us in ministry do, it's essential that there's a generation of men and women who take seriously the call of Christ. His eyes have fallen upon you. He has earnest desire to strengthen you. He has given you his word. He has given you his Holy Spirit. He has given you the body of Christ. He has given you his indwelling presence. He has given you a, a, a place in heaven sitting at the right hand of the throne. 
You are fully equipped to do all that God ever intended you to do. And now he says, now let's go take the world. And you want to know what the message is? Pull out that handout. I'm sorry, in the back, if you don't have a handout, I ran out. You got it? At least so you can see with somebody. This is important. What is it? What is it if you were to make a decision this week, not only in your life spiritually, but what if you were to make a decision in your life this week for the sake of the generation coming up after you? And I'm not talking about patting them on the back just once or twice. I'm talking about the fact that unless you're drawing up close to somebody and helping them to establish a relevant biblical agenda for their life and their relationships and their choices, I, would, I can make the case that we're not within the will of God in the body of Christ unless we are having that kind of relationship with somebody, that God has entrusted it unto us. And then you ask the question, okay, Ron, well, if that's true, find me faithful, but what's the agenda? I've got the agenda. I show this to a student, I'll go, you know, you want to have a relationship with the Lord? A relationship with the Lord is also a relationship with this book. Well, I don't get much out of it. Really, that's interesting. Because this book tells me that it's to be delighted in, it's treasured in our hearts, it's a path away from evil, it's a light to my path, it sustains me, it's righteous, it's where my footsteps are set, it's pure, it's truth and everlasting, it's the song of our hearts, it's the source of our hope, it stands forever, it's like fire and a hammer that we should live on it, that it's an expression of love, that it's the source of being clean before God. Anyone interested in having that kind of a relationship with this book? People say, you know, I've never seen that before. Next page. Because guess what that book defines? See, we're facing a generation that's not saying, God who? We're facing a generation that's saying, God who? Even after growing up in the church since kindergarten, we have a generation that's asking the question, God who? Rather than realizing it's the God who gave us birth, it's the God who's with me, who does not, who does keep covenant and loving kindness, doesn't take pleasure in wickedness, who saves the upright, who makes all things, works wonders, the God who is near, who has given us authority to men, who has raised him from the dead, who's got eyes like a flame of fire, who sits upon the throne, who sanctifies you, who's great and awesome, who's counseled. Want to have a relationship with this God? Is this the God that you're questioning? Is this the God you're rejecting? Well, I didn't think so. Next page. And he gives a spirit to us. Wonderful. What's your experience in the spirit? The spirit of life and wisdom, judgment, the, the spirit of counsel and strength and knowledge and, and truth and holiness and gentleness and promise and, and power and love and discipline. Interested in that spirit? Sure, Ron. Next page. Because this book also defines my faith. If I were to say to you, listen, do you have faith in Jesus? And you might say, yes. Okay, good. Define it. Give me a good definition. You're hard-pressed to find a student who's grown up in, in the church since kindergarten to be able to define their faith other than a relationship with Jesus. But I'm looking at faith that says what? We have boldness through it. Christ dwells in our hearts by it. It's a shield from the evil one that we should strive together for. It's found in Christ that we should hold it with a clear conscience. We should be an example of it. We should pursue it. Christ is the perfecter of it. That's the kind of faith I would like. Next page. Not only that kind of faith, but I want to have a faith that does something. Faith that enables a person to obey God, even blindly at times. Oh, it's a, it's a faith that enables a person to give implicit obedience to God no matter what he asks. A faith that enables a person to live a life which is different and separate from the standards set by this world. A faith that enables a person to have no fear of others. Enables a person to obey God, sometimes resulting in deliverance like the nation of Israel passing through the sea. 
That's the kind of faith we want to have for the next generation. Next page. Not only that, but it defines who we are. Of all the things that this world wants to define us, and do you guys realize what the, how the world defines people? Guess how the world defines women. The world defines women as not being okay. They get into relationships to be okay. They get dressed to be okay. They have hair a certain way to be okay. They have all kinds of stuff. They have sleepovers, you know, and they, and they watch Princess Bride 10 times and they quote it while they're watching it. And, you know, just to be okay. You know, they play with each other's hair and they get close to it, you know, because so they, they want to be okay. With a general predisposition toward feeling like they're not okay. I once met with a girl who was addicted to women's fashion magazines. I've never seen this before. But what she would do is she would take black Sharpie pen and page after page after page, she would circle this model's legs. Oh, if I only had legs like that, I'd be okay. This model's figure, this model's eyes, page after page after page. I came back to my office one day, and there's a stack of magazines on the corner of my desk this high. I knew exactly what they were. And you start looking through them page after page after page. And every time she circled something, guess what she was saying? If I only looked like that, I would be okay. And her entire self-definition was predicated upon who she wasn't. Who are you? No, I can tell you who I'm not, though. I remember I saw one page in which she must have taken the pen like a fist and went around like this really hard because it had broken through like five or six pages. I said, what, what happened here? She said, that was a very bad day. And guys, guess how the culture defines guys? The guys, that, the question the girls are asking, am I okay or am I not okay? The question guys are asking is, am I a success or a failure? with a general predisposition sometimes toward feeling like a failure, like I don't live up. I don't live up to these expectations or those expectations. I don't do this well enough, that well enough. That person does, that person does. I don't. And we need a generation to come alongside this generation with this kind of information to say, this is who you are. This is who defines who you are. The rest of it's a lie. Next page. It even defines our relationships. You've seen this before, all the one another verses. Next page. And if I want to be able to put, what, what, was the, what was the damning indictment that Jesus gave upon the Pharisees? They're nothing but what? They're nothing but statues. They've got eyes but cannot see. They've got ears that cannot hear. They've got hands that cannot touch. They're nothing but whitewashed tombs filled with dead men's bones. Oh, but the Lord says what? You need eyes to see. In this world, you need eyes to see. Because we live in enemy territory, don't we? I mean, 1 John 5.19 says the entire world lies in the power of the evil one. And we need a generation who's got the eyes to see, like Ephesians chapter 1 that says what? I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened so that you would be able to see. Anybody can see with these eyes, but to see with the eyes of your heart. To see into the lives of other people. To see the person I'm married to through the eyes of my heart. with eyes that are bright and gladdened, eyes made by the Lord, eyes that delight in the ways of the Father, eyes that will not be blinded, eyes that are shut to evil, eyes that set no worthless thing before them, eyes that cast away detestable things, eyes raised to heaven, eyes that are clear, eyes that are blessed. Anybody interested? Oh, there's a whole generation that would love to help you guide them into those kind of eyes. Next page. Oh, and to have ears to hear, to hear the word of the Lord. Oh, Lord, make me hear joy and gladness. Come and hear all who fear the Lord. Hear what the Lord will say to his godly ones. You know what Hebrews 12.25 says, you guys? See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. 
Isn't that cool? See, referring to the Lord, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. What's your question? What's he saying? It's a generation that needs to be able to hear the word of the Lord. Next question. If the Lord is speaking, then who is he speaking through? What did Paul say? Be an imitator of me as I am of Christ. We need a generation now that will say to the generation coming up after us, follow me as I follow Christ. Next page. Oh, the hands of the Lord. Hands that are clean, hands that hold fast to righteousness, hands that are washed in innocence, hands that hold fast to wisdom, that hold no bribe, hands that hold to the Lord, hands in a heart lifted toward heaven, hands that are strong. Next page. More hands. All of which leads to what? Words. You know, honesty is not the best policy. Have you discovered that? Honesty is not the best policy. It did not even make one of the fruit of the Spirit. Did you ever notice that? Because I'm really tired of people being honestly hurtful, honestly insensitive, honestly rude, honestly wrong. But follow the fruit of the Spirit, and honesty will take its care of itself. Look on the list here. Look at the sixth one down under words that tear down. You see the sixth one down? Job 6.25, what does it say? Words that are honest are painful. Oh, that we would have a generation, showing the generation coming up, that it's the fruit of the Spirit that defines our relationships, defines who we are. Next page. Anybody interested here in succeeding? Anyone here interested in the generation coming up after us succeeding? How would you like to succeed by saying every single day that in this day is the work well done, is the word well used, and is the Lord well pleased? Anybody interested? When, when, in 36 years at Spring Arbor, when people find out how long I've been there, they always ask me the historical perspective questions. Like, how are students different now than when you first started? I've never found a generation of students, seriously, increasingly so, that desires to succeed. They earnestly crave to succeed personally, relationally, spiritually, in every way. They would love to be able to answer those three questions to the affirmative every single day. Yet while feeling like never before, a fear that it'll never happen. The desire is there. The sense of adequacy is not. They need somebody to come alongside that realizes the second principle of success, and that being that success is also predicated upon the price that somebody else pays on your behalf in order to succeed. Next page. We won't go through all of that, but you can see those costs. And then the last page. It's always interesting to see the number of people who have never seen that list on the right side. Now, this isn't talking about earning salvation. This is also talking about the fact that in judgment, not everybody's judgment's the same. Not everyone's reward is the same. You may all have eternal life, but, you know, there's something else going on. But see, someday that I'll understand that my reward is with the Father to render to every man according to what he's done. I search the mind and the heart, and I give to each one according to your deeds. I search the heart, test the mind to give each according to their deeds. To recompense every man according to their deeds. To render to every man according to their deeds. How important is it, like James says, that faith without obedience is a dead faith? 
How important is How much emphasis? If the Lord said it once, you would have think that would have been enough. But so many times, we need a generation that would say, this is a, I want to have a dangerous kind of faith. I want to, I want to raise up a generation with a dangerous faith. You ever heard of C.S. Lewis? Yes? You may have heard of C.S. Lewis, but do you know who his biographer was? His name was Chad Walsh. Dr. Walsh wrote an intriguing book back in 1952 entitled Early Christians of the 21st Century. That being who? Us. And so Dr. Walsh just wrote down what he thought what it would be like 60 years later in the faith. And this is quoting Dr. Walsh. Millions of Christians now live in a sentimental haze of vague piety with soft worship music trembling in the light of stained glass windows. Their religion is a pleasant thing. Divorced from the intellect, divorced from the will, demanding little except lip service to a few harmless platitudes. He goes on to say that I think that Satan has called off his attempt to lead people to atheism, to agnosticism. After all, if a person travels far enough away from the faith, they're always of danger in seeing it in perspective and realizing that it is true. Now it's far safer from Satan's point of view to vaccinate a person with a mild case of Christianity so as to protect them from the real disease. We're on the borderline of a mild case of Christianity when the day calls for an army of men and women just like you to go back to your spheres of influence, whether it's in the church or in the community or in the business or in the school, wherever it may be, with, with a, 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 not a mild case of Christianity, but the real disease, to say, I'm going to pay a price for the generation coming up after me. I'm going to commit to somebody because a commitment to Christ is the first of many commitments. I've committed to Christ and now out of that commitment, I commit to you and I commit to you and I commit to you for the long haul. Let's see this through. Let's be godly men. Let's be godly women. Let's have the real disease until Jesus comes back again and finds us faithful. Amen? That's what I'm going to talk about this week. Okay? Let's pray. Father, I pray in this time together that through divine appointments all throughout this place, all across in this wonderful place, that this week men and women will be brave enough to go approach somebody and just say, can I talk? Can I, can, I, can I bring something up? Ask some questions. And not just for their benefit, but so that they might experience whatever freedom they might need in their hearts and minds but to be able to commit to the generation coming up after them. It's tough, and it's getting tougher all the time. This is a generation who needs this generation to say, follow me as I follow Christ and find us faithful doing so. As we do that this week, guide us, be with us, teach us, and as the scripture says, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Father, help us to hear this week in Jesus' name. Amen.